Well, good morning. How are you? Um, happy to be here. Uh, excited. I was pulling in the drive this morning, drove up from Kalamazoo and saw the grills out and was getting excited about the, the picnic afterwards. And then I immediately got nervous because I forgot my side dish. So uh, I hadn't decided who of you I'm going to be mooching off this morning, but uh, I'll apologize for that in advance. Uh, also a little nervous because uh, when I committed to preach for you this Sunday, I didn't realize that Pastor Brian Chapel was going to be here just a couple weeks before me. Uh, formerly, I was, I was at his church for 11 years, and so to kind of follow up uh, Pastor Brian after sitting under his teaching for a long, long time, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's intimidating, but, uh, but I am excited to be with you, to, to worship with you this morning, and uh, I'd like to just start by sharing a quick story uh, as we begin. So uh, I think back, it was 1998. And there was a college student named David who entered the university campus as an atheist. Uh, but after about two years, he went on his first conference with campus outreach and left there as a Christian. Uh, came back to the campus, began sharing that same gospel message that transformed his heart with his fraternity brothers. And after about another year or so, he saw his first disciple come to Christ. Uh, but he didn't stop there. He continued to share the gospel with, with that young man's best friends in the fraternity, uh, really creating a, a model for his young disciple, uh, sharing the gospel with some of his best friends. Uh, but after David graduated, then that young disciple began to follow in his footsteps, and he and one of his best friends decided they would make a commitment to share the gospel with all their fraternity brothers before they graduated. And so they would get together, praying weekly for their friends to come to Christ, uh, strategizing, putting their weekly schedules together, thinking about how can we best use our time to bring the good news to their friends on campus. Sometimes in the cafeteria, sharing the gospel over lunch. Uh, other times on a Friday evening in the middle of a party while everyone else was, was uh, getting drunk on alcohol. Uh, but it was their aim to share the good news with their, their friends and certainly, over those few years, uh, they made some enemies, as you can imagine. Uh, but they also got to see some of their best friends' lives change for all of eternity. And some people look back on those years and think that was actually the beginning of, of a revival on campus. Uh, the gospel not only entered into this one fraternity, but a number of other fraternities. And from there, began to spread to some of the sororities on campus and even some of the, the sports team on campus. Um, but other people looked at it and kind of scoffed and said, oh, this is just a fad that's going to blow over. But if you had been there, you would have said it was truly amazing. Well, I did. I had the opportunity to be there. I was, I was David's first disciple. I uh, grew up in kind of a pseudo-Christian home. Uh, came to campus, and he began to share the good news with me. And quickly, God transformed my life. And as a result of that, uh, seeing David share his faith with all my best friends, that really became my rule of thumb. Uh, that was my introduction to Christianity. Uh, Christians from day one share their faith. I got to see DT do it. And uh, I said David, DT, we called him DT. Um, Benny and DT were, were uh, good friends in college, so he knew exactly what I was talking about. Um, but it really was a privilege to get to see someone uh, before me just sharing the gospel like that kind of day in, day out. And that began uh, to instill in me this core value for evangelism, uh, and a, a conviction to share the gospel with the lost. 
And, and after I graduated from college, then that became my career. Uh, so today, after 17 years, my career really is centered around evangelism. Uh, but I tell you, my heart is not always centered around evangelism. For these 17 years, it, it has been a struggle to keep that passion alive, uh, to continue to press on. Different, different seasons of life have made it challenging to kind of keep that passion in my soul alive, to keep, maintain this heart of evangelism. And so my hope today is to share with you a passage that God used and etched on my heart years ago that he continues to use today to keep that passion alive. Uh, so let's go there now. We'll look back at Isaiah 50, verse 4. I'll, I'll quote this with you, uh, though I'll confess, uh, back in 2001, we were all reading our NIVs, and so uh, all my scripture memory verses came out of the NIV, so your version might be a little bit different, um, but th this is the way it stuck in my head. So this is Isaiah 50, verse 4. It says, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen as one being taught. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, and we ask that you would use it to enliven our hearts, uh, to point us back to you, God, that we would see you more clearly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll, I'll give you a flyover version of what I hope to accomplish this morning, and I think you can see this in your outlines if you're, if you're taking notes or following along. I really have three main points I'd love to share with you, and each of those are different attributes of an evangelist, or rather the servant. I'll unpack that more in a moment, but the first is that uh, a bold message, a, a brokenness for the lost, and then lastly, a humble dependence on the Father. Uh, so that's where I'm going, and I'll, I'll take the first uh, from that first part of verse 4. But the, the question that naturally comes up when you read a verse like this uh, is, is, who is speaking there? Who's the me of this passage? Uh, it says, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. Uh, so who's the me in that verse? Is it Isaiah? Is, is it simply him speaking and he's speaking of himself? Is he kind of uh, the, the symbolically speaking of the coming Messiah? Or, or is he even speaking as a representative of the nation of Israel. Uh, if you read different commentaries, you really can make an argument for all three of those. Uh, I'd, I would love to unpack all of that, but we, we don't have time to do that, so I'm going to just ask that. Uh, don't trust me, trust the Bible scholars, uh, that, that you can see all three of those packed in this one passage, but the best interpretation would be to view the me there as the coming Messiah or, or the servant. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9, is the third of four servant songs. If you were to study the, the second half of the book of Isaiah, there's four different passages that are referred to as the servant songs. Uh, you see this phrase, the servant, just kind of pop up in the text and uh, kind of unannounced. Who, who is the servant? Um, but it's referred to as, as the coming Messiah. And so really what I'd like to accomplish is the same marks that are found in this servant. Uh, in, in Jesus, the Messiah, or the great evangelist, uh, for thousands of years, the Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, you could think of them as the great evangelist that they have been working out all eternity to draw their people to themselves. And so we, we seek to study the servant, the three attributes that are found 
around uh, about him in this passage, but to acknowledge that those same attributes really should be found in our church, that those would be the things that mark us. And so let's go ahead and dive in and look at the first, which I've summarized in your outlines as the tongue. Uh, just to hone in on that, that uh, key phrase there, the tongue. So the first part of our verse, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. Or more accurately, what, what is the tongue representing? I would just, if you want to take notes, you could summarize that as a bold message. Uh, that God has chosen his particular means of drawing his people to himself. It's not through like a powerful army. Uh, it's not through money or possessions, but rather he's chosen the tongue to be his instrument to draw his people to himself. And this message is to be carried on the tongues of the prophets in the Old Testament. Or you look to the New Testament and you see phrases like herald, preacher, teacher, evangelist. Or a label that's used to mark all New Testament believers, witnesses, like a witness in the courtroom, using their tongue to proclaim this good news. Uh, so, so the tongue is God's instrument, but why an instructed tongue? Or as the ESV reads, the tongue of those who are taught. Uh, some of what is implied in that phrase, the instructed tongue or the tongue of those who are taught, is it's kind of written in the past tense, or in other words, the tongue has already been given its message. It's already been given the resources necessary for the task. And so what I'd like to do for each of these three attributes is to also introduce a barrier, a barrier to our evangelism. I, I was sharing with you the barriers to my own evangelism over the years, my desire to want to go and share the gospel with others. And so we're going to unpack with each of these attributes a possible reason why our evangelism wanes or things that would hinder us from naturally being compelled to go and share the good news with others. Uh, the first would simply be this, is you haven't received the instructed tongue. And so I'm, I'm really speaking to two audiences. Anytime I get the opportunity to, to, to preach like this, I always think there, there's the non-Christians in the audience and the Christians in the audience. And certainly... When you're speaking to a group this size, uh, there would be at least one non-Christian among us, maybe, maybe more. And so if that might be you, then my point is, is in thinking that you've yet to receive the instructed tongue, is maybe you have the knowledge of the gospel. Uh, you have the knowledge of Christianity, but you have yet to actually receive it into you. You've yet to accept it as true or to, to commit your belief to it and to commit your life. Uh, so in other words, maybe there's another tongue that has filled your mouth. There's another message that you would say is yours. Uh, the Father's message is not yours, but you have a different message. So I would ask that you would think about that with me. Uh, what fills your tongue? What fills your mouth? Uh, maybe it's your own ideology or your parents or your friends or the media's. Uh, but that you would think, what, what is it that fills your mouth that you've built your life around? Uh, but certainly the, the, the bulk of us here are coming together to fellowship as, as believers. And so for, for the believer, what does it look like to not have received the instructed tongue? Uh, this, would, this would be not that you haven't received the gospel. Certainly we all share in that. We've received the gospel, but maybe no one has made it clear to you that, that you were actually given the mission that accompanies the message. That those two things go hand in hand. That God desires to use your tongue 
to go and be that messenger to proclaim his fame to others. Now, so I, I think back to my own story with David. Never, never once did he ever instruct me to go and share my faith with our friends on campus, um, but rather he just modeled it. I saw it in his life, and so it wasn't so much that he instructed me with his words as much as he instructed me with his life. And I, I look at that and view that as a great privilege. And that's, that's my prayer for the college students that we work with and for all of you, that each of us would have that same privilege, to be able to see an evangelist, to have the, the ministry of evangelism modeled before us, uh, that we could see it lived out in another person's life and then follow that example. Well, let's, uh, let's get a little bit better understanding of, of the servant. What do we mean by the servant? And how is he already equipped for the task? If you flip back to the first servant song in Isaiah 42, it says that the servant has been filled with the Spirit. Or the second of those four servant songs, Isaiah 49, it speaks of the servant having a bow that has already been readied with its arrow. You know, that, that could almost be a disturbing picture in your mind, kind of a violent image, the bow being readied with the arrow. Uh, but the point of that is, is, is the servant has already been given the good resources to accomplish the task. Uh, maybe another analogy that could be helpful is to think about a syringe that has already been filled with its healing medicine or a, or a fire hose that's been filled with its water to go and extinguish the fire. Uh, so so you, you pick the analogy that, that fits for you. Uh, but that brings me to my second point, that the tongue has a purpose. Or better put, it has a specific goal or audience. Uh, so let's go there now. The second, second part of this uh, passage reads this. To know the word that sustains the weary. So again, I want to capture each of these phrases just with a, uh, with a short phrase that can stick in your mind. And the, the part that I want to emphasize today is a brokenness for the weak, or a brokenness for the weary. So the audience, or the goal of that tongue, is to go and impart strength to the weak. That, that is the task that the servant has been given, to give strength to the weary. So when you think about that word weary, what comes to your mind? Uh, I, uh, I woke up last uh, yesterday with a little bit of, of head cold, and so... I meant to apologize er earlier. I've met a lot of you, but haven't had the chance to meet everyone. So if I sound a little bit nasally already this morning, uh, I promise I'm not from Michigan. Uh, thank you. You laughed at that. That was supposed to be a joke. I grew up in, uh, in the South, went to Tennessee Tech. Uh, so apologize for that. But when, it, when I think about where you think about like a, a sickness that might be uh, holding you down, I think about my more recent mountain biking experiences in Tennessee, uh, in our fraternity, there was a bunch of us that just loved to mountain bike. Um, but then I moved on to central Illinois, uh, me and a team of others, kind of like we're doing here in Michigan, went to go establish a, a ministry in Illinois. Uh, I don't know if you've spent much time in Illinois, but it's just like one giant cornfield. Yeah, flat. <laughs> so not a whole lot of mountain biking. And so 20 years later, moving to Michigan, I'm trying to get back into this sport and I'll tell you, I, I was weary. <laughs> Those first, first couple times out on the trail, uh, I was questioning, am I going to make it to the finish line? And the guys I've been riding with about once a week, they, they could see it all over my face. Uh, I remember getting off my bike and literally just like laying prostrate on the ground, and uh, someone came and brought me this, this pack of goo. I, I don't even know what was in it, but when you're like that and you're weary and you're desperate, you'll just take whatever help you can get. And so I think it just filled with a bunch of sugar. Uh, another gal looked at me one time and she said, Kenny, 
you have to remember to breathe. <laughs> and as obvious and simple as it sounds, it was actually really helpful. And so after a few rides, I began to put two and two together. Uh, my body's weary. I need more calories. I need more oxygen in order to make it. Uh, but, but this passage is speaking about a different weariness, right? And not necessarily a physical weariness, though maybe that's a part of it. Uh, it's helpful to think about the, the context as two layers. Uh, the first immediate context is Isaiah's context. Uh, he's speaking to the Israelites. Uh, what do we know about the Israelites at this point in history? Uh, they're under Assyrian captivity. Uh, they've lost the promised land that God had given them. And now they're in another's land. And so you can imagine the, the emotional weariness that came with their circumstances. Uh, the spiritual weariness and, and maybe even the physical weariness. But, but not only that, they're, they're in captivity. God, who had once given them freedom uh, from slavery, from bondage in Egypt, and now here they are back in that same circumstances. So you can imagine, again, the weariness that's being packed on. But again, this, this is a prophecy about the servant. And so we think about that second layer of the, the prophecy here. The second t- context would be the servant's audience or Jesus Christ's disciples who he's speaking to. And think about the weariness that could be found in the New Testament disciples and how his words were to be spoken in them, just like the prophets, to, to give them strength. Earlier I said this, this is not a, a physical weariness as much as a spiritual weariness. And so you have the, the prophets, uh, like Isaiah, who are ministering to the Israelites. Uh, verses like Jeremiah fifteen sixteen that, that use a similar phrase. He says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. So you see this connection between the word and weariness. Uh, so how is it that the word can imbibe strength to the weary? Again, in Jesus' ministry, he actually referred to himself as the bread of life. That, that his work, that his message would be like bread to those who are hungering for truth. Uh, you think about Lazarus, who he spoke with his words and raised him to life. Or the woman at the well, who says when she received his message, when she received his words, it was like a fountain of life that welled up within her. And so you, you see that Jesus' words... His very message are like this spiritual food that can give strength to the weary. Let's let's get a little bit better grasp of who the weary are in Isaiah's context. Uh, To do that, you'd have to look back at the first three verses of chapter 50, uh, which are fascinating, but they're also very confusing. (laughs) And so again, we're going to trust the Bible scholars here. Uh, I, I had to read a few different commentaries to wrap my mind around what was really going on. Uh, But I'll just try to summarize it for you right now. Essentially, there's a conversation going on between God the Father and the Israelites. And really, you only get to see one side of the conversation, uh, namely God's. And it doesn't take long before you get the tone of these first three verses. And it's important for us to grasp the tone of of the start to chapter 50 so that we can read the appropriate tone into verse 4. But God asked them five sharp and heavy rhetorical questions, one after the other. And you, the readers left trying to infer what, what was going on. What were the Israelites saying to God? What were they saying to Yahweh? And so you kind of you have to fill in the gaps and connect the dots there. Uh, but what are we learning? 
uh, we're, we quickly see that God's uh, attitude comes as he's appalled by the Israelites' words. He's shocked by the things that they're saying. Uh, they're actually accusing God of wrongdoing, of selling them to their captives. And then later, that's in verse 1, and then later in verse 2, they accuse him of being too weak to rescue them from their captives. So, so what are we learning about the weary in Isaiah's context? Or what are we learning for those first three verses? Uh, any time you read in Scripture where someone is pointing the finger back at God and accusing him of wrongdoing, uh, that's, that should be like a buzzer going off your head. Ding, 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 ding. Like, nope, don't, don't do that. Uh, that's never a good idea to bring accusations to, to the Father, right? Uh, but you get a sense of, of their tone. Uh, a little sarcasm, a little accusation, a little deserving mentality, a little unthankfulness, un- ungratefulness. But this, this, again, this is the backdrop of verse 4. Uh, so what we're learning there is two attitudes of God that are, that are being matched together. He's shocked on one hand in those first three verses, but then immediately follows in verse 4. Uh, almost shockingly, how can you go from this conversation then straight into verse 4 where God's saying he's eager to impart his mercy and his generosity to his people? If you read Calvin's commentaries on this passage, it says, Every time you see the Father speaking to his people and he comes out with a strong, a sharp message, it's always followed by his mercy. He always immediately responds, reminding them of his mercy. And so in summary, what we're learning is, is God, the great evangelist, is equipping his servant with a goodness that even goes after his enemies. So, so in other words, Jesus' words meet both the weary Christian and the weary non-Christian. Both are in need of his mercy. Both are in need of his grace. The Christian needs his strength to make it through life's temptations and trials. The non-Christian needs the words that bring life initial life to, to spark that new salvation. Uh, but again, we're looking at the barriers that are associated with each of these marks. Uh, so ask yourself, how, how is my evangelism? How am I doing at sharing the good news with others? And don't, don't hear that question uh, as a, a leading question or to guilt trip you. Uh, that'll never work. It won't last. Uh, Uh, twisting someone's arm can never get them to share their faith, but rather my prayer is that this passage would stir within us the same thing that is in the heart of the servant, that God would work that into our hearts as well. And so the second barrier to why people commonly don't share the good news with others is maybe they've lost sight of how weary the weary actually are. You know, over the years, we've taken a lot of our college students down to Panama City, Florida for a spring break trip. And initially, I I would kind of gather these trips together in order to help these students and young believers grow in their skill in evangelism. Uh, You go down to somewhere where there's a huge audience, a ton of people that are are out on the streets, out on the beaches, uh, meeting new faces. Uh, We thought, what a great opportunity to go and do some evangelism. Uh, But the thing that I quickly found after a couple of these visits, uh, not only were we growing in skill, we were growing in our burden for the weary. You know, you go to a place like that, and it doesn't take long to kind of see everyone's sin right out there in the open. And and I I think about the hardness of my heart. Uh, How many times have I been in that kind of situation where I actually see someone else's sin, and I kind of look down my nose at them, 
Uh, the longer I've been in Christ at times, I have to fight that self-righteousness that says, I can't, I can't believe the sin that's kind of flagrantly uh, out there in the open. Uh, however, once you get out there and you interact with these people and, and you meet them and you hear their stories and you engage with them and you see uh, their desperate need for this message of life, the words of life that Christ can bring to them, it reminds you of your own weariness, of your own brokenness. And so I would ask you, uh, who, are the, who are the people, when I, when I share that phrase, weary, who are the weary people that you know that come to your mind? Who are the people that God lays on your heart when you think about the, the weary that are in need of the words of life? Now, the, the first person I think about it is myself. I, I look back on my own story. I think about when David brought the words of life to me as a 19-year-old and think about how many times was I searching for that eternal security on my own in my own strength but never being able to muster it up. So when I heard the words of Jesus' mercy and how he died in my place, I immediately clung to them. Or I think about my pursuit of purpose and meaning in life and never finding it in other sources but how Christ has called us to be his disciples, to be a part of his kingdom work. I think about my neighbors in central Illinois. Uh, my wife and I, Laura, we lived in central Illinois for about 11 years. Uh, we moved in this neighborhood because it was close to campus. But after 11 years, you, you begin to meet your neighbors. And we, we really had a neat neighborhood. They would often gather for different holidays. And I remember thinking, these people are so nice. This is not what I kind of pictured in the Midwest after leaving the Bible Belt. Uh, so kind. I, I just assumed there must be a great Christian presence around our neighborhood until the summer that we gathered some college students and we actually started doing door-to-door -door evangelism in my neighborhood, going house to house, uh, meeting people, talking to them about this eternal message of Jesus Christ and hearing more of their stories, not until I began to engage them and to begin to, uh, to pursue them on a more intimate, deeper level did my heart begin to break for my neighbors and begin to realize the disparity between their understanding of eternal life and what the Bible has to say. So, so a possible barrier for you might be that, that your life might be like me. Eleven years in the same place, a, a leader in, the, uh, in this Christian ministry, most of my relationships were built right here in the church. Uh, the longer I've been in full-time ministry, the fewer relationships I've actually had with the lost. The longer I've been in the faith and my relationships have kind of uh, began to scatter around the country and just uh, lose sight of the people that I once knew when I first came to Christ, the, those relationships grow old. And so I would encourage you to think about who are the people that God has put before you that you could maybe begin to re-engage a relationship with them. And I trust that the Holy Spirit within us uh, would spark that burden, would enlighten our eyes to see the weariness that is there. Well, that, that brings me to the last point then. Um, the, the third main point here, taken from the last part of verse 4. Uh, read this with me. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Uh, so this one will go quick, but I just want to point out the connection or the relationship between these two body parts. Uh, you've got the tongue at the beginning of this verse, and the ear at the end. So, so what's that relationship like, or what's going on there? Uh, I call this the overflow principle. Uh, I, I think about my two-year-old, uh, Maria Claire. 
We adopted her just before moving to Michigan uh, two years ago. Uh, but the things that come out of her mouth are, are just kind of hilarious. Uh, before we adopted Maria Claire, our youngest was seven, and so we were always boasting to our friends about how we'd gotten out of the baby stage. We're like, man, we could like see the, uh, the world again. Uh, and then we got this wild idea to go and adopt. Uh, but we're getting to re-experience the, the baby stage and now the two-year-old stage. Uh, but things that just kind of parrot out of her mouth are hilarious. And so uh, if you were to ask her a yes or no question, uh, she won't just give you the affirmative yes. Uh, she says, of course. Uh, do you want more cereal? Of course. Do you need to go to the potty? Of course. And so <laughs> where, where she got it is obviously from one of us. We, we really don't know. Or another one of her phrases is, what's the big deal? <laughs> uh, she, she's heard one of her uh, siblings kind of complaining about something. And she'll look at him and say, what's the big deal? <laughs> it's like, do you even register what you're saying? Like you're using it at the appropriate time. But what, what's going on there? It's the overflow principle. What comes in the ear naturally comes out of her mouth. And it's the same for you and I. And that's part of what's going on in this passage today. Uh, Isaiah says, he wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Uh, so the, to paraphrase this last point, uh, the ear, it would simply be this, a humble dependence on the Father. Uh, so, so why a humble dependence on the Father? Uh, the way this overflow principle works is, is the evangelist knows and understands that their self-knowledge is not sufficient. That in order to go and to preach the words of life to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members, we need to start by continually filling our ears with the word of God so that we would receive his truth, his knowledge, to be able to pass it on to others. Uh, but, it's, but it's not only about knowledge, about what's going into our ear, it's also about our heart. Uh, this message is the, is the heart of evangelism. We've already talked about how we can lose that passion. We can lose that natural desire of an overflow to just go and share the good news with others. And so we need our hearts to continually be softened, to, to continually be regenerated or re-enlivened, to receive those words of life that would continue to fill us up with the joy of the gospel, to remind us of our own weariness and how God meets us in our own sin and to be continually amazed of how he would be merciful to us so that we would be naturally compelled to want to be sharing that same message with others. And so the, the last barrier then to our evangelism would simply be this. The gospel has not been awakening our ears over and over, morning by morning. One of my favorite authors, Jerry Bridges, wrote a book, Discipline of Grace. Now, one of the first books I read as a, a young believer in college, but he said that the gospel is not to be a book that you put on the shelf after having read it one time and you forget about it and let it grow dusty. But instead, the gospel is not only the message of salvation, but it's also this book that we need to take off the bookshelf, read it day by day, reminding ourselves of God's goodness to us. So I would urge you to examine your diet. What is it that you're ingesting? What is it that you're chewing on and filling your mouth with? What are you memorizing? What is the meditations of your heart? Is it the gospel? If, if you haven't been actively sharing 
the good news with others, this could be an indication that the gospel has kind of grown cold or become commonplace to you. So in, in conclusion, uh, as we wrap things up, and I'd like to return back to that story of David at, at the beginning. Uh, some of you might think, well, yeah, of course, Kenny. God raises up these special individuals like David, these rock stars that, that they're, they're just kind of giants of the faith. Of course, God would use them to do a miraculous work in his kingdom. Uh, but if you knew David like I do, you would actually recognize that, that he's just kind of a regular guy. Uh, certainly, the way that God used him in my life was, was amazing to me. I, I looked at him as a, as a brand new believer, as a rock star. Uh, but our friendships continued, and, and I really recognized that David and myself uh, were, were just regular men. Uh, but what marked David's life is this, is he knew that he was weary in need of the gospel, and he knew that his friends were weary in need of the gospel. And so the, the point of that is to recognize that we don't have to be able. It's not about our ability. It's more about our availability. And David made himself available, and I thank God for him, how he used him to reach me with the gospel just 22 years ago. And I encourage you that, that God can use you. He can use every one of us and will for his glory. Well, thank you for letting me share this message with you today. Uh, let me close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word again, for how you have used it continually in our lives. God, and we ask that you would root this word deep down in our souls, that we too would be people like Isaiah and like the servant who were filled morning by morning, and Lord, that we would be eager to go and share that same message with others. Father, you know the people that are in our lives, uh, those that, that we've already been sharing the gospel with, those that have yet to receive this good news, and we pray for them, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself just as you did us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.